0: Welcome to our third podcast, it's fab you will come back to listen to more things infection control related. Unfortunately our talk on ventilation has had to be postponed to a later date, but that doesn't mean we haven't got a brilliant podcast lined up for you guys today.
1: Hi. Absolutely, Joe. So today we're gonna to be talking to one of our wonderful colleagues called Gemma. She is a senior biomedical scientist who is aiming to qualify as a clinical scientist this year with an aim of progressing into a more clinical role, working alongside the clinical teams to improve the microbiology service, both within the hospital setting, but also to GPs in the community. Gemma specializes in infectious diseases, such as MRSA, HIV, Hepatitis, and of course, most recently, COVID. Gemma has worked on many projects, including the introduction of the first point of care test for flu and RSV within the local NHS Trust.
0: Gemma has also been involved in the introduction of the procalcitonin, which is a specific marker of. Mac- bacterial infections to help diagnose seriously ill patients and was involved in the introduction of a method to diagnose causes of gastroenteritis in just four hours rather than two days which from an infection control nurse's perspective makes our days so much easier.
1: So me and Jo were really privileged to work closely with Gemma when she did a secondment with us in the infection control team and it was an amazing opportunity for us to learn from Gemma. Gemma is a fantastic teacher and we quite often still hunt her down now in the labs um, if we have any microbiology specific questions, so we have lots of questions lined up for today's podcast so let's get Gemma on.
2: Thank you Joe and Tanya and thank you so much for having me today, Uh, and it was a privilege to work with you as well I got so much out of that experience. Um, It's a really wonderful opportunity to talk about microbiology to a much wider audience than I normally would. It's normally sort of healthcare staff and scientists, so it would be really great to talk about some of these topics with a a wider audience.
0: We've been really looking forward to having you on today. So within your day-to-day role, that includes working in the microbiology lab, leading the rapid COVID lab and the serology lab. So with all this knowledge that you have from this, can you explain what the different types of COVID tests are and why some take longer than others? I know there's lots of talk going around at the minute about the different types of tests.
2: Yeah, of course. So, yeah, there are quite a number of different tests now, and I think uh, I'll go over the main ones. So I think the test most people will probably be familiar with by now is the lateral flow test, because a lot of people would now be doing that at home or for their work. Um, And this is really similar to a pregnancy test in terms of how it works. So I think we'll go through the details of how that actually works, and then I'll go into the more laboratory based tests. So lateral flow tests, as we call them, are really simple to perform compared to most of our lab tests. Um, For the COVID test, I'm sure you all know, you take a swab of your nose and or your throat, you mix it into a sort of little solution, a clear looking solution and drip some of it into a strip and then wait, say, 30 minutes. And if it's negative, you get one line. And if it's positive, you get two. Hopefully, most people will have just had one. So this test works by having two invisible lines in the strip um, which with two different test sets of antibodies on them. And basically, um, when you take your swab, so whether it's got COVID virus on it or not, you put that in the solution and that, basically that solution with the virus in runs up the strip. um, And then this, um, if the target is there, it will bind to the antibodies that have been designed against it. And then as part of that binding, a color change will normally happen. And that's why then you can see this line of antibodies. Now, the two lines are different. So the positive line or the test line, as we call it, has got antibodies against your target. So for COVID test, it would be the COVID virus or part of the COVID virus. Your control line or your line that means you know the test has worked, usually binds to something you know will be present. So usually it's something that's in the solution or that's gonna definitely be picked up by the swab, but normally to be sure it's something in the solution. Because you can run this test outside the lab, it's really quick. So you were talking about time to results. Now so these are normally 30 minutes because some of the delay we find is actually in transporting swabs or samples to the laboratory and then getting the result back to the user. So that's the one most people will use and it usually takes 30 to 45 minutes from start to finish. So the main test we now use in the lab is something called a LAMP test. So this involves the same process of taking a swab, although the swab will probably look slightly different um, and then adding some of the swab sort of adding the swab to a solution in a tube. So when this gets to the lab, which obviously takes a bit of time, some of this solution from the tube is heated um, to a fairly high temperature, and that helps to what we call inactivate the virus. And that makes the virus safe for us to handle in the laboratory. Um, We then extract some of the genetic material of the virus out of the solution. And this helps our ability to detect the virus. So we're not just looking for a little bit. We've actually made sure that we've purified the virus. We've concentrated it. So we're more likely to pick it up than, say, the lateral flow test that you would do at home. We then use chemicals that bind to different specific parts of the virus. And we use about six of them in the lab test. So it picks quite a lot of different bits of the genetic sequence. Um, And then we copy these many, many times. and if the virus is present, by the time the test is finished, you end up with millions of copies of the virus. So another reason you might not want to do this at home is obviously that's a potentially a huge risk if your in- activation didn't work. And obviously it involves a fair bit of equipment. So. So you get all these copies, but obviously that's no help on its own. So what's also happening is there's a chemical process in the test that means that a machine can detect this copying. So it either detects the sort of amplification, so it detects the fact you've got more and more copies, or it detects a part of the process called the binding. So these tests are more likely to detect the virus than your lateral flow tests at home, because we do this, what we call this amplification. So you get more copies, so it's easier to detect. Plus we've got really sensitive equipment in a laboratory that you just wouldn't have access to at home. So so that's really useful. Um, But because of all these extra steps and the transport involved, these often take quite a long time. So the test itself might only take a couple of hours, but the result might take half a day to come back to you. So this is actually was in the news, this test. It was originally called the 20 minute test. Um, which was all over the news for a period of time. And this was a little bit frustrating for us because it's only the detecting bit at the end that actually takes 20 minutes. The 20 minutes did not include any of this preparation or transport. So right at the beginning, we got a lot of calls saying, I sent my swab 30 minutes ago, why do I not have my result? Um, There are quite a few other tests that we use. Those are the two main ones that we're using across the country, but there is also one called PCR. This also involves amplification of the genetic material of the virus, and you use fluorescence in the same way as you're looking for binding or copying. Um, it might sound identical to the lamp, but at a technical level, it varies very slightly. So there's lots of heating and cooling steps, which you don't get in a lamp test. Um, so this actually takes even longer than a lamp test. This could take three to four hours once it's in the laboratory, but the outcome is very similar. They're both very sensitive and specific for a virus. So you definitely do get a really good result.
1: Thank you, Jim, that was a really useful explanation of all of the different ones. So so apart from COVID, I know we've been dealing a lot with COVID in, in the recent months, um, but besides COVID, what other main types of lab tests are performed if we're looking for other infectious um, pathogens or other infections? So this is a really huge question. We obviously
2: have quite a lot of different tests that we use, but um, I'll focus on the main ones that we use in microbiology. So one of the most common tests that we use to detect bacteria, such as say MRSA for example, is something called agar plates. So um, this is where a sort of set of media and nutrients have been put into a broth and cooled and set into little plastic trays. We then take the samples that you think might have an infection in, so is it a urine sample or a swab of a wound, for example and you'll plate these onto the agar plates. you'll literally put some of the sample straight onto the plate, and then we'll incubate it overnight, um, usually at 37 degrees, because that's the temperature of the body. So that's the temperature the pathogens like um, to help the bacteria grow. And as I said, these plates have various nutrients in. Some of them are a bit more selective, but that's the principle. Um, So then the next day we'll come back and we'll see what's grown. We obviously have really skilled technical scientists that can then look at these plates and look at all the different bacteria that might have grown. And then they can figure out which ones are actually the pathogens against which ones are the normal ones. Because your skin is covered in bacteria, your mouth is full of bacteria, and most of these are never harmful to you. So we need to be able to tell the difference between these pathogens and what we call the commensals. So your normal flora that lives on your body, that's almost certainly causing you no harm. And actually, in a lot of cases is protecting you from other infection. We also use microscopy, so we sometimes just look straight at a sample, we just add a bit of water to it and just look straight at it. This one's quite useful for things like parasites because you've got a very specific structure that you're looking for. We have a variety of other tests as well, so we use blood samples quite a lot to look for antibodies against certain infections or we can look for the, the pathogens themselves. So an example of this is HIV, So we use a single test and that detects a couple of different bits of the virus itself and detects antibodies against the different types of HIV. So in a single test, we can tell if someone's got the infection and potentially which stage of the infection they're at. We also have PCR. So I mentioned that in the in the previous answer when we talked about COVID. So and we use that. Quite often, when we're looking for a pathogen, we can't necessarily grow. So, things like viruses are really, really difficult to grow. It's extremely difficult. It's very sensitive and it's quite old fashioned now. Nobody really does it. So, what we do is we use this PCR where we look for the specific genetic material of the virus and copy it and look for it that way. So, an example of that would say if you thought someone maybe had chickenpox or shingles, which is the later progression of chickenpox we would actually just look for the virus itself and that's diagnostic, you you don't need anything else if you've detected it, that's what you're dealing with. There are a couple of other rarer techniques. So for example, uh, if we get tissue samples, you can actually look for specific bacteria in those or parasites. So sometimes we look for tuberculosis in a a lymph node if you think someone's got an unusual form of tuberculosis or parasites, some of them burrow into the skin and you can see them in these tissue samples in, in the skin. There are also kind of, uh, not lab tests we do in microbiology so much, but sort of peripheral tests that are very useful to tell if someone's got an infection. So there's some blood tests where you can look for different types of white blood cells, and depending if a certain type is raised, that might indicate a certain type of infection. Um, Not always, but some of them are quite sort of lead you towards thinking maybe they've got a bacterial infection or a viral infection, but not what exact type. And then there's some other markers. You mentioned in the introduction like procalcitonin. Rather than just saying someone's got an infection, that specifically measures if someone's got a bacterial infection and gives you an idea of how severely unwell they are based on how high it is. So, and then one called CRP, which is more related to tissue damage. So although that may not be due to an infection, it could be. So if you've got, say, someone with symptoms of an infection and a raised CRP and a raised white blood cell count, you know you're looking for infection you just maybe don't know where.
0: Thanks Gemma, that's really interesting to hear. And I know you mentioned there about growing um, infections within the lab. How do we do that? How how do you grow a bug?
2: (laughs) So as I said in my last answer, we have agar plates. So I'll go a bit more into that. So the plates can contain a different number of different things. So like the most common plate we use, for example, contains horse blood in it. Most bacteria that cause infections need different parts of the body to cause an infection. So they use your iron, for example. They might break down some of your your cells in your body. So your red blood cells or your white blood cells. So we give the bacteria the things that they need to grow in these agar plates. So, yeah, one of the common things we use is blood but we do have a range. So some of them have completely minimal nutrients in, and then some of them have everything, like we give them very specific compounds we know they definitely need. Um, Some of them also are what we call more selective. So they have different antibiotics in to knock out certain bacteria. Um, We have a plate that actually knocks out pretty much all bacteria and we use it to grow yeasts, which is the main cause of thrush. So what we tend to do when someone's got an infection, but we never know the cause initially. You've got a wound, for example, it looks nasty, it's pussy, but you don't actually know what's causing the infection. So we put up a range of these plates to cover all the different things we might be looking for. Um, And we put those up at the same time and we put them up together and then we can read them all together. So some of these plates go up at different temperatures, again, depending on what you think you're looking for on that plate. So some of them go as low as sort of 27, 28 degrees when you're looking for molds and yeasts. And then some of them go up to 42 um, and that's because they can grow at that temperature, but some of your commensals may not. So it helps to weed out your things that you're not looking for. And then we also put some of these plates up in different atmospheres. So some bacteria can't grow in the presence of oxygen, which I know sounds really odd, but they can't. So if you get an abscess, for example, that's a very low oxygen environment. So some pathogens will enjoy that environment and will grow better. And some of them prefer a higher or lower amount of carbon dioxide. Um, so we also put some of these plates in these different atmospheres as well. Most of them do go up for 24 hours and then we read the plates. So then what happens is that we then pull the plates out the next day. So we leave these plates all overnight. So we do them, we process them in the daytime. We put them in these big incubators of these different temperatures and different atmospheres overnight. And then we pull them all out the next day. And our skilled scientists then have learnt and been taught what all the normal pathogens look like, what the commensals look like, when they should be looking for more unusual things. So, for example, if somebody's got a bite from an animal, rather than it being a more normal wound, like a a cut, you're looking for quite different things on top of all the normal infections. So and then some really specific ones. So like abscesses, um, there are some bacteria that might take up to 10 days to grow, Um, So we need to be considering those. So one thing that's really useful that we get with some of our requests is clinical information on what's happened with the patient or or what's wrong with them, because that really helps us to think of these more weird and wonderful bacteria. So the next day, someone will pull them out. We'll do some really simple tests to figure out if their pathogens are not growing on these plates. So our most common wound pathogen, for example, is something called Staphylococcus aureus. And it has a couple of things on its, the outside of its cell wall that we can detect with a really simple little two-minute test, and then we know that's what we're dealing with. So we do quite a lot of these little biochemical tests that are based on sort of very basic rudimentary things about the bacteria, so things they can't get rid of or shed, so we know that that's what we're dealing with. If we then got a pathogen, that's great, that's really useful information, but what a doctor actually really wants to know is what antibiotic they're going to be able to use to treat it with. So what we then do once we've grown it at the 24 hour mark is we then take this pathogen and put it on a different plate and we have little round filter paper discs with specific amounts of antibiotics in. We pop these on the plate, we incubate it again overnight. So this takes another 24 hours. When we come to these the next day, what's happened is that if the bacteria is resistant, the antibiotics will have sort of seeped into the plate but that won't have disturbed the bacteria at all. So the bacteria will grow all the way up to these little filter paper discs. But if it's sensitive, obviously it won't be able to grow near the disc because the antibiotic will be in the plate. So we measure these, what we call zones of inhibition. So these areas that the bacteria can't grow in. And then we use some um, calculated guidelines to tell us whether that means the antibiotic uh, is gonna work against the bacteria or not. And we also have some bacteria that are what we call indicators. So there are antibiotics come in groups and some antibiotics resistance to some or sensitivity to some will actually indicate a sensitivity or resistance to a whole bunch. So we actually test some antibiotics we can't actually use but they tell us other things about the bacteria that are really useful.
1: Thank you, Jem. I think that it's one of the the key things is going through the the different stages. And I think a lot of people will find that really useful to know the breakdown of the tests. Um, One of the other things we hear quite a lot is gram positive and gram negative. Um, So the question I just wanted to ask is, what do we mean by those? And I think that will lead quite nicely into talking about what gram staining is as well. Okay,
2: so gram staining is a a really core technique to microbiology. It's in fact one of the fundamental aspects of microbiology, especially when we're trying to figure out what bacteria we might be dealing with. So gram staining is a really old technique. It's over 150 years old, uh, developed by a scientist called Hans Christian Gram, after whom it was named. Um, And it came in what were the era of the microscope. So the microscope had invented maybe 100, 200 years before, and people were still figuring out what they could really use this for, rather than just looking at really tiny things. So gram-positive and gram-negative bacteria are one of the ways we can differentiate different types of bacteria. There are quite a few, but gram staining is probably one of the most critical ones. And what it represents is a difference in the cell wall. So a cell wall of a bacteria is its external sort of surface, it is what it shows to the world um, and what protects it from the world. And these differ quite significantly between gram-positive and gram-negative and we can utilize that to identify them which is what gram staining does. So gram-positive bacteria have a really thick layer, a compound called peptidoglycan Um, as most of their cell wall whereas gram negatives have a really thin layer of peptidoglycan but have other sections to the cell wall on top of that such as a fatty membrane and some space Um, so for gram staining this is what we take advantage of so I'll quickly run through how you do a gram stain and explain what's going on while you're doing it so so the first thing you do is you use a purple stain called crystal violet which is violet it's purple Um, and then we add iodine which acts as a mordant so you sort of pour your crystal violet over your bacteria and you add the iodine. Now the crystal violet will be taken up by all the bacteria. They'll all go purple at this point. And the iodine binds to the crystal violet and that pre- that prevents some of it from escaping out of the bacteria. That It might just wash back out on its own. We then apply something called acetone, which we call a differentiator. So this will wash the stain out of the bacteria. But what's really critical here is because the peptidoglycan is very thick for the gram-positives and very thin for the gram-negatives, this will allow allow the crystal violet to escape out of the gram-negatives, but not escape out of the gram-positives. So the gram-positives remain purple, and now the gram-negatives have no colour. You've washed the colour back out again. And it also strips a a layer of the cell membrane off the gram-negatives. So now you've got a gram positive that's purple and a gram negative that's got no colour. So now you need to be able to see your gram negative if you were to look down a microscope. So we then apply a counter stain and there's quite a lot of different ones of these and in different bits of the world, you'll come across different ones. But the one we use the most is something called carbofusion, which is a fuchsia or a really vibrant pink colour. It's very beautiful. So we apply that to all the bacteria on the the slide and the gram positives will take it up, but you won't be able to see it through the really deep, intense purple, whereas the gram negatives will then go this beautiful pink colour. We then just use a normal light microscope to look down it and we can see, are they purple or are they pink? So this test is actually also really useful though, because it tells us a couple of other fundamental things about the bacteria that help us to identify them. So they also, this also allows us, because we can visualise the bacteria, to see what shape it is. So certain bacteria are round or spherical, some of them are rod-like, some of them are are spherical, Um, some of them are somewhere in the middle. So this is also a fundamental aspect of identifying a bacteria and it's something that it cannot pretend to be something else. And as well, they grow in specific patterns. So they can grow in clusters, they can grow in chains, they can grow at angles. So we can look at this, what we call morphology as well to help us pinpoint what type of bacteria we're dealing with.
0: Thank you, Gem. The next question we have for you is one that I myself want to have a better understanding of. And it's something that's mentioned a lot when we hear microbiologists talk about test results. And these are sensitivity and specificity. I had to watch how I said that yet there. Um, what are these and what is the difference between these?
2: That is a really interesting question. We're getting into a bit of statistics now, but it's a, there's a really important difference between them, but they are both important statistical elements of a test. So they're both two terms that we use to describe effectively how accurate a test is at getting the correct result. And they're both typically described as a percentage. So I'll describe each of them and then I'll sort of give an example to help explain what I mean. So sensitivity is how often a test is positive when the person being tested has the disease you're testing for. While specificity is how often a test is negative when the person being tested does not have the disease you're looking for. So although these sound very similar, they're important for different reasons. So the example I've got, which is a bit topical, is a COVID test with a sensitivity of 95% means that it will the test will be positive for 95% of people tested who have COVID, but 5% of those people with COVID will not have a positive result. So that's quite important to know what the sensitivity of a test is, because you need to know how many people you're going to miss that have a disease. Specificity, using the same example. So a COVID test with a specificity of 95 percent means the test will be negative for 95 percent of people who do not have COVID. But five percent of people will get a positive test, even though they don't have COVID. So obviously, what we really like is every test we have to be 100% for both of these, because you don't want to miss anybody with a disease, but you also don't want to diagnose anyone with a disease they don't have, especially when you're talking about really significant ones like HIV, for example. You do not want to be getting that wrong. But in the real world, that's not usually possible. Uh, There are lots of reasons why tests may give incorrect results. So, but what we do do in the lab to mitigate this is we put in extra steps. So for example, going back to HIV, our sensitivity and specificity for our main test is over 99.9%, I think. So that's huge. That's only like one in a thousand people that might get an incorrect result, but that result is massive for those people. So what we do, because we know occasionally those results are gonna be potentially wrong, is we then do another test that uses a different method to do the same test. So this gives us two pieces of information and if they both say they're positive with their separate potential sort of incorrect results, you end up with a really, really, really tiny percentage of people who might end up with the wrong result. So that's really unlikely to happen. So that's what we do. We create these kind of tiers of testing where we won't just do a single test. We may do follow-up tests. Or if we get a funny result, we may repeat a test. So that's something we do with COVID, for example. Uh, the LAMP test gives you two results. And if we don't like the look of them, we don't think they're very strong positives or they haven't reacted in the right way, we will actually just repeat the test. And in theory, if you've got an anonymous or a spurious result that doesn't make any sense, you shouldn't be able to replicate that because the odds of replicating it twice would be very low. So for different tests, sensitivity and specificity are of different significance because you're potentially looking for different things. And it also depends on what you're doing, whether it's a screening test or a diagnostic test. So, for COVID, the specificity isn't quite as important because you can perform other tests to confirm whether your result is correct. So, whereas we'd like a a high specificity because we don't want to be missing anyone who has COVID. Better to pick up somebody as being a false positive, repeat the test and find out they're negative, than miss someone who actually has the infection and all the consequences of that for them, their
1: family and the workplace. Thank you, Gem. I've just got a notification on Zoom to say we have 10 minutes left. So if we drop off, I'll send another invite if we've still got things to go through. OK, so Gem, I think we may have covered um, this question earlier on, but I just wanted to just cover it again. So as infection control nurses, um, we are quite often asked why some results come back straight away and some seem to take a few days. So what's happening in the lab with these samples and, and why is there a difference in time? So, as I kind
2: of alluded to earlier, I suppose, some of that very much depends on what test we're dealing with. So, if we we do have some lateral flow tests um, that we do in the laboratory. And as I said earlier, they can take 30, 45 minutes and you can get a result straight out. Sometimes our COVID tests take two to three hours and some of our plates and things I was talking about earlier take 48 hours. Um, and I think there's some uh, people don't always understand that. They just assume that we're doing maybe a single test and... Therefore, the results should always take the same amount of time. The other thing I think that people don't always appreciate is we may repeat tests or we may find unusual results and we want to confirm them before actually giving anybody that result. So as I said in the last question, if we get an unusual COVID result, we'll repeat the test. Because once you send out that result and give someone that information, they will run with that information for that patient. So if you diagnose them with something like COVID that is what they're gonna say is the diagnosis of the patient. So we need to make sure those results are as accurate accurate as we could possibly make them, so.
0: Thanks Gemma, I think that's a huge reassurance for people to hear that as well, Um, and to know that they're not just going out willy-nilly and the, the amount of work that's put into them to make sure that they're accurate. One of the terms that we've heard quite a lot at the minute is sequencing. Um, we've had this a lot in relation, especially to the variants of concern with COVID. What is sequencing and how does it help us?
2: So sequencing is quite a broad term, um, but in effect, what it means is that you're trying to work out the exact genetic sequence for a bacteria or organism that you're looking for. So when you say we've heard a lot about it recently, it's where people are presumably doing it for COVID samples. Um, So we can use sequencing for quite a lot of things. So we can use it to either help us identify something that we're looking for. We can help us identify if we have a specific genetic mutation in that organism that we're looking for, or whether your organism is mutating over time. And it's probably one of those last two that we're most concerned about for COVID because we know it's mutating and we know that's changing how it's behaving in the population. So we're currently using sequencing to help us identify these variants of concern as they're being called for COVID. So for example, the current one that everybody's most concerned about is the Indian variant, because at the moment it looks like it's spreading much more quickly through the population than the previous variants of COVID we've come across. So sequencing allows us to determine where these little mutations have happened. And that allows us to pinpoint actually if that's making a difference to the to the organism, and maybe how it behaved differently. We also have a limited form of sequencing which we call genotyping. So this is where you might type or work out the exact code for a very specific bit of a genetic sequence to determine if your organism, your virus has a specific change in one or more of its genes the genes we would be interested in for pathogenicity or spread, for example. So one example I've got is MRSA. Um, So that has a genetic change to its cell wall. We talked about cell walls earlier. So one of its main genes for the creation of the cell wall called the mecA gene is mutated for MRSA, and that creates its resistance to many of the antibiotics that MRSA is inherently resistant to, whereas its sensitive cousin Staphylococcus aureus does not have these inherent resistances. And it's this one little switch in this gene that makes all that difference. So we have tests that can detect that, that help us tell if that's if that's what's going on. Um, in a hospital that I work in, actually sequencing also really helps us if there's a potential outbreak of an infection. Um, So sometimes we can work out from the different strains and the genotyping of those strains in an outbreak, maybe where the outbreak started and how it's spread through the hospital. And that way that's really important because we can work out maybe new ways that infections spread or things we've not thought about before. And it can really help us improve our practice to prevent outbreaks of things in the future.
1: Thank you, Gem. That was a a really good um, kind of explanation of sequencing. I think we've covered quite a lot in this podcast and I think we could talk about a lot of those subjects in a lot more detail, probably in individual podcasts. But the most important question I want to ask you and the one I'm always excited to hear the response to is if you could pick just three moments in your career, what would be your top three? Hmm.
2: So my career, I feel like it's not actually been that long yet. So, (laughs) but I think, so in order to progress in my field, you often need to undertake a lot of different qualifications. So I keep talking about the technical specialist knowledge that we have. And um, there's an important one called the specialist diploma in medical microbiology, where you demonstrate you have a really high level of knowledge of the bacteria that you're dealing with every day. And I undertook that it takes about three years to do that. And then I ended up taking my master's at the same time, which was part-time. So I only had about 18 months to complete that as well. So I personally feel like that was quite a that was quite an achievement to manage both of those although I will admit I was pretty exhausted by the end um the others asked less so about myself I think um so you already alluded to my second one I think um where I was offered the wonderful opportunity to spend a year with you guys um we loved our you. In your department <laughs> <laughs> and um having spent my career in the lab up to that point pretty much exclusively I had a very limited idea of how the hospital works and where my work and the lab fitted into that so so my year with with the infection control team where I worked with them every day went on to the wards dealt with outbreaks helped manage patient flow really opened my eyes to how the hospital works in reality and where everybody sits in that and I really think that everything I've done since then so helping with the COVID work and that has really been impacted by that because I've got a much better idea of what I do what I do and how it fits into the hospital as a whole. Um, The last one is probably a bit of personal learning that I got very early in my career which is a really positive message for people I think in their in early in their careers so when I was a trainee I was offered the opportunity to help redesign a section of our laboratory um, about diagnosing bacterial gastroenteritis. And this was a really daunting task and felt like a massive responsibility to someone as a trainee. But I was given fairly free reign to think about what I thought we needed in the hospital and how it was going to run. And actually it turned out really well. So myself and another trainee implemented a new process and a new machine. And actually it saved half a million pounds in the first winter that we used it and 300 bed days at the hospital, which was massive. I think we saw the impact of that fairly immediately as a trust. So that really taught me that your grade and your job title are not what will limit you in your career and they will not dictate to you what you can do. But actually, it's just the limits you place upon yourself and what you decide it is that you're prepared to learn and adapt to that will actually get you where you want to go.
1: Thank you, Gem. Um, That is a really lovely key message to to finish the session on. So I think we'll wrap it up here. Thank you so much for your time and, and for sharing your wealth of knowledge. I knew it was going to be a brilliant session. So thank you very much.
2: Thank you very much for having me. I'm always pleased to share what I know. And hopefully this will inspire new people to go and learn more about microbiology and pathology work.
0: Thank you so much to you all for listening and supporting our podcast episodes we have some interesting speakers lined up for the next few months and as always we will get a new episode out to you each
1: month. We hope you have had a lovely day and we really look forward to sharing more IPC topics with you soon don't forget as always to follow us on Twitter and Instagram for updates just search for twinning at IPC bye for now.